Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Joe Riley, CEO and co-founder of Sensia, a platform that was built to transform the way companies hire talent. Now, it's hard to summarize Joe Riley in just one subtitle, from rower to former FBI analyst and serial entrepreneur to advocate and mentor. So I won't try to list all of those out because this will be a five-hour show, (laughs) but I promise we do cover all of those things and more. In this episode, we start with Joe's journey to college, where she received a full scholarship to the University of Virginia for rowing. And we discuss how the sport helped shape her mindset and energy. And we discuss how it felt when she was told, you're never going to row again in college. And what was remarkable was that while she was at UVA after rowing, she was recruited to the FBI. And she had some pretty fantastic assignments that we talk about before she ultimately decided to leave the Bureau. Now, as a curious learner who constantly seeks more and more knowledge, which you'll definitely pick up on, Jo made it a point to travel around the world. And over the last decade, she has traveled to over 110 countries and asked leaders and executives three primary questions. She asked them, what is your most important asset? What is your biggest problem? And what are you most afraid of? And their answers were surprisingly all related. And so I loved hearing how the series of those questions and answers helped Joe launch Sensia. Now, Joe has launched multiple successful businesses. She's taken one IPO, which we talk about, and she shares the hardships and the lessons learned along the way, and ultimately how all of those struggles have helped Sensia and her become even stronger. Please enjoy this conversation with the fantastic Joe Riley. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Well, first, I want to say thank you to Michael Dana for the introduction. He knows I get supercharged being around and hearing about stories of growth. And when he mentioned your background, I mean, you were a full scholarship athlete at UVA where you were a national rower. You went on to go to the FBI as an analyst, and now you're an entrepreneur and you've taken the company public. So all these things. And when he mentioned your background, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have to have Joe on. So thank you for joining. Oh, my God. Thank you. That means a lot. He's great. So let's peel the layers of your story all the way back and start with where you grew up. So I am one of the rare few people that actually grew up in San Francisco. I was born and raised right in San Francisco. It happens to be where I live right now. And when I was 13, people always ask me when I tell people I grew up in San Francisco, if they grew up in San Francisco or anywhere close, they go, where do you go to high school? I went to high school in Connecticut because my parents sent me to boarding school, which was both great and fantastic and super scary because I didn't know anyone. But I live now again in San Francisco and I've in between been to 110 countries or something crazy. So seeing the world, still love San Francisco, even after COVID. 
That's amazing. So how did you choose UVA to go to school or did it choose you from the scholarship perspective? Kind of both, funny enough. I fell in love when I went to high school. I was kind of the world's worst athlete, if you think about it. And yet I was a great rower. But rowing's kind of the last sport parents try. They try all the normal sports first, like soccer and softball and lacrosse and field hockey. And those were all the cool people sports, but I was the rower. And I didn't really know I was a rower until I went to high school. My freshman year, I made the varsity eight. And kind of after that, that was what I was going to be for the rest of my life was a rower. And when I, college came around, I'd already been on the junior national team for a number of years. I held a number of records in the U.S. and on a world level that I thought what matters the most is I go to the greatest rowing program. And I was accepted early to one of the Ivy Leagues. I actually rejected them because I had experienced and visited a number of schools, which is what the NCAA does with athletes is they actually will take some of the top athletes they let us visit five schools funded by the NCAA to see the schools that we want. And during the time that I went to see those schools, but after I applied early, I was like, I need to go to a public school. Like boarding school is like an Ivy league school. So I was like, I've done this for four years. I want to have a hundred thousand people show up for a football game and have the camaraderie that exists on that. And so I ended up really seeing a number of different schools that I loved, but overall had scholarships from, actually close to 50 universities in the United States. So I had an opportunity to kind of go everywhere. One school, which is kind of funny, one school and one coach didn't give me a full scholarship. And that was UVA. I ended up getting full scholarship before I went there. But he said, I only have two scholarships. I have a lot of girls. He was known as the number one coach. He was also known as the hardest coach. And that was what was interesting to me was this guy was either going to make me an Olympic athlete or I was going to die trying. And so it kind of bothered me when he said that he's like, I want to offer you this piece and then I can go and recruit other girls for the team. And I'm like, at the time I was 18 years old. I didn't know. I had no perspective. I had my perspective. And so I ended up saying to him, I was like, I think I'm going to end up going somewhere else. And he called back and he said, I want you, I'm going to give you a full scholarship. And so I went there. One of the greatest moments was by the time I left my fourth year, we had 14 full scholarships because the NCAA, that's the maximum amount of full scholarships they can give, but it's given on the performance of the team. And so it was an honor to watch that and an honor to see just incredible girls continually going to University of Virginia, one for the coach and the program. Amazing. And so what happened at UVA? Because I don't think that you were a rower every single year, but what happened? My junior year, I was taken out of sport because starting my senior year in high school, I blew my first, what is known as an angle hernia. It's where your abs split and your stomach falls through. And it sounds terrible and disgusting, but normally this is something that happens to older men. I'm not a man, nor am I older. I was young. (laughs) And so I, by the time that I was junior in college, I had had five and they kept going in and giving me surgeries on these. They would try and sew them back together and they would rip back open. And it was pulling me, I mean, it was a pretty big disaster, but what ended up occurring was that UVA has one of the best medical centers as an athlete at University of Virginia, we have access to incredible doctors. And they said to me, you're going to need another surgery. And I was like, okay, do the surgery. And they were like, well, you need to know something. You won't be able to have children and you won't be able to go to the bathroom on your own. So if you do this, it will change your life forever. And I'm like, well, do the surgery. And this is what's known as brain. (laughs) I was so brainwashed as an athlete that it was the thing I was going to do that the idea of 
anything else was non-existent. And so I had the head of UVA medical went to the coach. The coach was like, we should do the surgery. But then they ended up going to the board of the NCAA and saying, this girl, we can't fix her injury. Even if we give her another surgery, that's not going to work. She's had a lot. And they sat me down. I will never forget this. It was the head of UVA medical, head of my sport on a medical side as well. And they said, we've gone to the NCAA. You're never allowed to row in the United States again, but you're going to keep your full scholarship. And it was as if someone told you that your whole value in life, you're not allowed to use it anymore. And at the time, that was all I wanted to be and do. And really, really, really struggled with that. I struggled to the point I had lost the team. That team was like my family. It felt like to them that I was a traitor in a lot of ways, not for any reason other than I was no longer able to be part of this. And I was such an integral part of the team. At the same time, I felt like I had failed them. I used to go to practice and eventually the coach said to me, you can only come to practice if you go and talk to a sports psychologist. And that individual probably made the biggest difference in my life in that they helped me understand how to make the transition from such a big loss. Shortly after that, I had a a unique opportunity because I was approached by the FBI to go work for the FBI and the CIA, funny enough, but I picked the FBI. So that part of my life was a really early lesson that sometimes the worst things that happen have the best thing right around the corner if you could just let them actually happen. (laughs) I love that. Look at all the signs, right? It's like, nope, you really can't keep this sport going because there's some really big things happening for you in the future, but you got to cut it off. So the universe was giving me a lot of times to tell me that piece of information. (laughs) Well, that's an amazing lesson learned, but let's rewind a little bit. So you had mentioned the FBI contacted you as a recruit. Can you share a little bit more about that? My family had been in government, which led them to kind of watch the kids around that. I traveled a lot in my life. I was a good athlete. I was a good academic. Wasn't always a good academic. Had to overcome a few challenges there too. But there were pieces about my life that I think attracted them. And one way or another, I was introduced to the Bureau. And UVA is a fantastic school if you're interested in intelligence. UVA is such a breeding ground. It's almost the Stanford for engineers for Silicon Valley. It's where the intelligence is going to go and pick great students. And so it's not random, but it was helpful to note now that I look back, I do think that it had to do with a lot of how many family members and people were around me that were either involved in intelligence or in the Bureau. And so you were an FBI analyst while in college then? Yeah, I actually started in the International Training Unit which was an amazing part of the Bureau. It's the only unit in the Bureau where it's the only part in Quantico other than new agent training that is right in Quantico. It was designed specifically because the way it breaks down is basically FBI is in the US and CIA is international. Also, despite what the television is going to show you, the Bureau is investigative. So we come in after something's happened and we investigate that versus kind of the knocking down doors that's more police officers, but it's much cooler. It looks like it's a bureau. And there's cases of that, but really why the international training years started by an incredible agent. And he started a number of law enforcement training academies on an international level because the U.S. was losing U.S. citizens internationally and those crimes were not being documented. So we couldn't actually try those crimes back here in the United States using U.S. law. But additionally, if you think about it, many of these countries, their law enforcement had been put in that position because of family. They were 
related to the right person or they were somebody's uncle or whatnot, but they weren't given any of the training tools. And so the training center actually took the top delegates of a country and we would train them. My courses were on law enforcement, drug investigation, major case management. And so how do we teach the delegates to say, all right, if you're in charge of all traffic, how are you going to teach your own task force how to investigate a crime? Or let's say a terrorist blows up a bomb. How are you going to investigate that terrorist crime scene? And so these were different training centers. And if you looked at Latin America, Latin America had different training centers that were focused on more drug focused or more that are related to Latin America, whereas mine is the Middle East. Very cool. And so how long were you with the FBI for? So about a year and a half. I had a unique moment with my supervisor agent. We were actually in the UAE and we had just finished training course. And he said to me, he goes, you know, Joe, the Bureau will lose you. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. The Bureau's not going to lose me. Like, this is it. I mean, I was also, you should note, I wanted to be an assassin from about the age of six. So <laughs> I was like, this is why I mean, for some random reason, thank God my parents did not think I was nuts. My dad's like, I'm going to have to teach you how to shoot a gun. And so probably another leading indicator into why I was recruited was I was also <laughs> kind of a very big fan. But he said the Bureau's going to lose you. So I thought, well, this guy's crazy. He goes, let me tell you what's going to happen you get so passionate, you deserve to be standing in front of thousands of people making a difference in the world. And the Bureau has changed so much, they're going to take that light in you, and they're going to want it to be in a box. And they're going to want you to stay in your lane. And one of the things that had bothered me was actually the day I went and joined the Bureau, they told me every day I'd be promoted and the day I'd have to retire. And how much money I'd make on each promotion. So I could just mark a calendar like it was, I would be coming up on retirement, funny enough, in less than 10 years from now, <laughs> which is crazy to think about in my 30s, like to think that that would be the case. But I was so young at the time joining. So that idea of it's time-based really shows up, especially to somebody who is very merit-based like me, where I was highly competitive. I'm like, how do I speed up from this moment to that moment and that patronage to this one? And so you can't do that in a bureau. So it was like the combination of what he said and really experiencing, watching a number of my supervisor agents have to retire, watching what they did after that was not what, it's a lot different when you're in there and you're looking at it going, do I want to be like this for the rest of my life? And so I went and became an entrepreneur and have been broken ever since, or I was unemployable ever since. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's amazing that your advisor, or your supervisor mentioned that because I think a lot of people it's natural and more comfortable just to go along with what you're used to. And so if it's like a familiar track and here's every two years you get elevated or get a raise, that's what's comfortable. So kudos to him for mentioning that to you and letting you shine as bright as you could. So then what happened after both the FBI stint and then also college? I watched one of what is today one of my very, very close friends and a great entrepreneur. But I watched her sell business to business a product, which at the time she was representing Staples Corporation, bringing in their business accounts. And I didn't think at the time, and this she's probably going to hear this and hate me, but I was like, she is not a good salesperson. First time I ever saw her, I was like, this person's not good. What is she doing? I had no experience with sales. I don't even know who I was to be judgmental, but I was like, I've done raffle tickets and sold whatever it is door to door as a kid trying to make whatever money to buy a PlayStation or whatever. And so I watched her make, I think she made $3,000 in commission in like an hour. And I was like, 
I could do that a lot better. I could do that, make money on the side. And then the FBI would never know while I'm transitioning units. And it was obviously the Bureau knows everything. So that's not how that would have ever gone down anyway, if I tried to do that. But very quickly, I was like, I'm going to do this. Within the first week, I became the number one sales rep in the world across 2,500 reps. And Staples was like, you know what? After two months, they're like, you have trained all these people. You're a great salesperson. I'm still like, what am I selling? I still had no idea at that point. They're like, we're going to give you your own company. We're going to be your exclusive client. We're going to give you all of Chicago. And anything you sell or anything, any of the accounts that your team brings in, this is how the payment structure now my education in building a business at that point of ripe age of 22, no business school was, I watched Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross and Boiler Room. And those were the two pieces of information. People were like, you got to watch these two movies. They're very good at teaching people how to like, not build, but really like, if you're in that rapid scale revenue growth, I'll never forget starting in the downtown Chicago. I had no money, no idea what I was doing, but I had saved enough money based on what I had done for the last two, three months that I rented an office space and I brought two people with me and I said, all right, we're going to build this company. And we were in a McDonald's and I was like, we're going to touch every business in the city. Like, look around. I'm like telling them this stuff. And they're like, this girl's nuts. Can you afford another thing of French fries? I'm like, no, but one day I will. Like, I will never forget that. And so Too funny. that company grew. We ended up taking on multiple customers. So we had Visa MasterCard as well. We expanded into New York City. We grew that to hundreds of people and then sold it. So That's it was amazing. a very interesting journey. Just, it taught me a lot about coming from athletics. You put everything in and never know the turnoff button. And so for the first through the time that I built that business, which is really two and a half years, I slept roughly, I worked about 21 hours a day on average for two and a half years. And so no way of, there was a lot of lessons I learned. I was not good at delegating. I wasn't good at understanding how to teach people to be able to do what I did. And those are some of the lessons I've carried on as I've gone on and now had multiple businesses. Let's talk about a few more of those businesses, but who knew that a McDonald's would lead to so much inspiration and selling? (laughs) It's amazing. I know. So then what happened after this sales role? Did you get the entrepreneurial bite and say, okay, let's do this on my own? Yeah. So after that point, I was like, I'm going to go. And I was on my own. I started that company on my own. We just had this great opportunity to have the clients. The next thing that happened was I came back to San Francisco and I was like, I want to build I'm not sure what the next thing is, but I know I want to be in Silicon Valley. I was from here and about a month and a half after I moved back, I met what would be my future husband. Six weeks after we met, he was an American. He was also a venture capitalist and he had started a venture firm in China and was living in Beijing. And we met, instantly fell in love about six weeks after we met. I was, we were engaged and I had moved to China. And it was kind of a unique time in life where I'm, I was mid-20s and like, why not? If it doesn't work out, I'll come home. It was kind of taking that chance. And I would say one of the greatest times and opportunities of my life, seeing China at the time, it was 2007. I was there for five years. I built a mobile e-commerce company with another friend that we joined venture to the Chinese government. But while I was in China, I 
started to travel around the world and see what were some of the pain points that mobile e-commerce business was really around the fashion boom. Think about China. China had gone from made in China to made for China. That was the wealthiest, highest end market. Everyone was trying to figure out how to get into China. And you had all these incredible luxury brands coming into China. None of them had actually known the culture. None of them had any Chinese websites or mobile apps. And what did the Chinese do? They would walk by a store they had never seen because it's the same equivalent as us walking by a store we'd never seen in China. They would look it up on their phone. Oh, there's nothing there telling them about it. So the first business was really opportunistic of this is absolutely something that's needed. And the platform that we built took content translated that content and allowed for transactions to happen on any mobile device for any brand. So the brand could basically white label that to make it their own brand, but it would do everything from have e-commerce to streaming fashion shows to translating their websites. And so it was really, really cool. It to this day still represents thousands of fashion brands out of China. I learned a lot about how to do business in different parts of the world doing that one. But along with building that Everywhere else when you live in a country like China is vacation. <laughs> China is, people say, if you can go to New York and make it there, you can make it anywhere. I'm like, take what you think is happening in New York, multiply that by about a billion, and that's Shanghai or that's Beijing. Can you expand is- on that? In what way? Whether it's the hustle and bustle of work environment, the restaurants, the culture, but I've only visited Beijing a few times for work, but don't know it culturally very well. The speed of change is like, you can taste that. The speed at which they, the speed of change at the same time with the knowledge and wisdom of 5,000 years. So there's this calmness that occurs in China. And at the time, think about it, in 2008, I was in a country that was booming. I wasn't in the country that was talking about the end of the world. And the Chinese used to laugh and they'd go, oh, you Americans are so funny. Like, you guys are so worried because you're not at the top right now you'll be at the top again. You're only a few hundred years old. I promise you, we're thousands of years old. We've been at the top, we've been at the bottom. We've been at the top again and the bottom. This happens all through history over and over and over again. You guys get so worked up, like it's okay. It was potentially an adult with a life of wisdom talking to an infant and trying to tell them everything's gonna be okay. So. It was great in that sense because I felt like they had seen the future, but they understand that history always repeats itself. So that was something nice. I also think that China is a very different way. One important lesson I learned about doing business in China is that doing business in America is like a game of poker. You make all these bets, people bet with you, and then the winner takes the pot. So those few investors that invested with you or the people that backed you, they get some of that, but there's a few big incumbents in every market. In China, it's like playing mahjong which everyone can bet from outside, but the game is over when there's an equal distribution of money to all the players. It really never ends. In the end, though, it isn't like, oh, I made the right bet. I may take the pot. You guys can all buzz off. Instead, it is a play where you say, if I'm going to come in, I'm going to make something valuable in China. I also have to give that part of that. I have to make China better too. And I think we look at this without understanding it and are saying, well, they're naive or they're hard to work with. What I think is that was more of an opportunity to learn culture and learn that every world is different. Every world, every country in the world is different. Every culture in the world is different. And so it was a great lesson. For the last 10 years, I've traveled to now 
110 countries. And that was because I was on this quest to know what were some of the biggest problems in the world. Like if I was going to solve the next thing, if I was going to be an entrepreneur again, build another company, takes a lot out. You don't get paid anything. (laughs) It's not as glamorous as anyone thinks. And what would that be? I need to go after solving a really big problem. And so that led to the next part of my life, which is this passion for HR, solving the world of HR technology. That is incredible. I mean, going back to your comment about the social education of learning someone's culture, I think that's so important and it's underrated how meaningful and significant traveling can educate you. And so certainly in this pandemic, I miss traveling so much, just literally like you learn so much from landing somewhere else and grabbing a meal and indulgent conversation with someone, but that is so rich with information. So I envy the hundred countries that you visited in the last decade. I completely agree. I think that education is the ability to see and understand things from other people's opinion or other people's viewpoint. Intelligence is what you can read in a book in a lot of ways. And so I felt so, I had such a unique competitive advantage because of, I spent all of my money traveling the world. I still do. I still am super interested in the issues facing the world. And that was something that was so inspiring to me was just, my dad was a great teacher of mine and a huge part of my life. And Unfortunately, recently I lost him and he said, you should always ask questions. And if you want to know something, go on a journey, like go on a quest to ask these questions, to figure it out. Like you were saying crowdsourcing information before there was crowdsourcing. The reason I went on this kind of like 110 countries was I would seek out the top executives I could find and leaders. And I asked him three questions. I would ask, what is your most important asset? What is your biggest problem? And what are you afraid of? Funny enough, rarely is, I've never had anyone ask me those things. I'm like, it is so interesting to hear CEOs around the world tell you those three answers. But what was crazy is that the vast majority said the same thing for all three answers. They said, my people are my greatest asset. My biggest challenge is I can't find good enough people who can do the work I need. And my biggest fear is that if I can't find talent skilled enough for the future, I will not be able to survive. Now, this has been a decade journey. It is insane. So I looked at that and was like, okay, maybe I don't know how big the HR tech market is, or I don't know what we spend in hiring people or making people decisions. Sure enough, we've never spent more money in history hiring people. We've never had more HR technologies at our fingertips. So there's never been more technology trying to solve the problem. And yet we've never had more enterprises or organizations in the world report that they cannot find qualified talent than we do today. And that has inspired now my last two companies, Sensei being my fourth, but my last one was also an HR tech, but really focused on, and I thought that the way to solve that was have the candidate change the way they were communicating about themselves, stop talking about what they were doing in the past and help them talk about what they can do for the company. And that was called One Page. So it was basically a one-page job proposal and it was amazing. The stories were incredible and the company did incredibly well. It was an experience where I really felt like we transformed lives. That was addictive more than the startup bug. I love the perspective of you literally traveling around the world, collecting all this information. I love those three questions that you asked those executives. And then just coming from the problem of how do you attract and then retain talent? I think that is an amazing goal to kind of try to solve. But rewinding a little bit to one page, that is a company that you started and went all the way to get an IPO. But can we walk through that whole process? And then Sensia? So that was a 
really interesting journey in that we had built a what actually started as a B2C product because it was, as I said, consumers. What ended up happening is enterprises would receive these one-page proposals from candidates and they came to us and said, can you guys get us more of these? Like, how do we request these? How do we use this to assess our talent? And so that launched off really the enterprise product, which became what we became. And that would be a challenge that organizations would put out and candidates competed to solve the challenge to win the job at the company or the promotion. And all using the methodology of one page, which was actually based on a book that my dad wrote me when I graduated high school. My dad was my co-founder in that business. And so that company was the first venture-backed company I had ever had. And if you want to go through the most humbling exercise, raise venture money for the first time, or really ever, I will tell you this, I raised over $100 million. It's not easier. It's maybe better because you understand to also crowdsource feedback first, but in the beginning, it's begging and pleading to get a meeting. And then you finally get a meeting and the person's not qualified and they don't have money or they're invested in mobile and you're trying to pitch them with your heart and soul enterprise product. And they're like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, I'm just not interested. And so that was kind of a series of challenges. That company though started to do well enough. We were going to go and raise our next round of funding. We had raised $3 million at that point as our seed round. And we were approached to list the company in Australia as the first U.S. tech company to list in Australia. And I was like, there's an exchange in Australia. Like I had, was not qualified to list the company. I didn't know anything at that point. And so we actually went through with that mostly because Australia tech was taking off. There was a huge opportunity for us to globalize our product at a different rate than we would. We also had an opportunity to get investors on a much larger scale, but impact people way bigger than we would if we went through the regular journey. And over the time that we took that company public thinking, the company listed, and Australian stock market is different than here in the US because you can actually list the company as a smaller company. That is like their venture. So we listed not thinking we'd kind of grow. We were, I think, a $50 million company at the time. And then two years later, we're about a billion dollar business. And so our billion dollar market cap and had investors all over the world. Most of our investors are US based institutions. And the growth of that was also, I mean, you could just taste the growth, but it was growth in combination with on a startup with public company vocal or like milestones or events, if that makes sense. So quarters, instead of years, or you're looking at a plan in a much shorter time period or how you do things very differently. And I think when I listed, one of the things that I didn't do very well was I didn't understand the importance of having the right team for the right, or even being myself, having the right understanding or the right people around me to make that jump from private to public is a big jump. And I give that feedback a lot now. I also didn't understand how valuable and important investors are. And so that company as we went through really that growth and as we went through that rise, we got hit with something that took us probably a year to understand what was happening. We got hit with a hostile takeover, which was basically a short manipulation scheme where investors shorted stock that they did not have. So they basically said, we're, we're betting the stock's going to go down, but they did that with 100% of our stock every day for a year. And it was like, I was a larger shareholder. So I'm like, I know my stock is not being shorted. Like what is going on? It was a journey that even the big institutions couldn't understand what was happening. 
And then all of a sudden we saw pretty hostile investor on, or a hostile investor on, that basically showed up on our register as owning 5% of the company. Went from kind of not being on the register at all to now owning 5%, which means that in a public company, they are a large enough shareholder to call a general meeting. And the day after that person showed up, they said to me, they said, I think what you've done is good. You can go ahead and give me the business now. And I remember sitting there with the chairman laughing, being like, what? He made a funny. He's like, you could just go do this again somewhere else, but I'm going to go ahead and take this. And I was like, could you imagine having the confidence to do that? And so sure enough, it went down a path that I was 100% not ready for, but where that individual then launched a series of slander campaigns against me and the business, ended up getting on the board, froze the stock. This is going on four years ago now. And to this day, the stock's still locked up. And all the money that we had raised and all of everything that we built is sitting there and all the investors are still not even on stock. There's no way to trade the stock. Is the business still operating? No, there's nothing. It's just a shell with $50 million in the bank. And what do you think his incentive was or what do you think his goal was to do that? I don't know. Whatever the goal is, it wasn't mine. How did you transition to coming up with Sensia and building that business? Well, one page had a different way of doing it. Some of the things that we had uncovered was there was a major need in the enterprise for people that were not applying to the organization. They needed to know who was out there in the market. But also, one of the hardest things to do is you sit across from all these hiring managers or recruiters or executives, and they tell you about their perfect hire and uncover certain data pieces about that process, which are really hard to swallow. For example, some of the top four ways that recruiters, do you have a Caucasian name? Are you a male? Did you go to an Ivy League school? And did you work at a Fortune 500 company? And as somebody who, other than having a Caucasian name, I don't fit in any of those criteria. And it was shocking to sit there and hear these people explain to me all their perfect candidates. And they would use these things. They would say, Ivy League school, or they worked at Google or Airbnb, or they would say whatever it was, or they worked at Coca-Cola or worked at whatever. And yet seeing that every time and having at the same time, when you talk to the hiring manager and the person that had the need, they were like, I just want someone who has the ability to learn, is competitive, it's driven. They don't care where they go to school. But what was happening was hiring managers would say to recruiters, I need to find someone who's been through an IPO, been through hyper growth, they're loyal, they're diverse. And that recruiter then has this fun task of using the technology that exists today for them to go and find people. And they would go, okay, how would I identify hypergrowth? What are some hypergrowth companies? Now let me look at the people that have worked there in this role. Where did they go to school? Where did they work? And they start to put these into keywords. And so what we learned was every people decision in the world is made on non-contextualized, unintelligent data. And yet there is no other category that has not been transformed with intelligent data. If you think about it, if you want finance information, you get Bloomberg. It can tell you everything looking at all of these trajectories of businesses to make the right trade. If you want to buy a house, you go on Zillow. It's going to tell you, you can figure out the walkability score to the downtown center. You can go figure out how many steps it is to get down downtown or the crime rates or even if you're going to make money on buying that house, you are probably, some of the listeners have probably listened to Spotify today. You have intelligence being used to tell you the next song you should listen to. 
And every people decision in the world, trillions of dollars are spent using uninformed, unstructured data that is highly subjective, has a tremendous amount of bias, and is incredibly manual. And what we looked at was saying, we need to make this data intelligent. And so we've built what is known now as a talent genome. We've taken the world of talent data and understood, we've built out patterns or understood patterns that are invisible to the human eye that allow us to determine somebody's skill set, their performance against their peers on a high level, their kind of experience, their accolades. So are they competitive? Are they a high performer? Are they a rising star? Are they loyal? Are they diverse? These are things that are really, really, really important, but also it allows us to understand things in a much needed way for talent decisions to be made fairly. And the big passion for the company is to eliminate bias that is today holding about 3 billion people back from the jobs that they qualify for. Love that. I mean, I love the idea of using data and focusing on what you can extract from it, because to your point, hiring today is so manual, so subjective, so qualitative. But let me ask you, when you look at data, whether it's a black box looking at the markets or looking at just like the technical data, the problem that many have with it is that it is as good as what is put in. And it, that means it's as good as whoever's programming it, whoever's modeling it adds their kind of own layer. How do you add a qualitative assessment so that the data is actually good and it's not including your unconscious bias? So what we found was that the data itself meant nothing. So if I said to you, Rolex, what would you say? Tell me, what would you say when I say Rolex? Luxury brand, timepiece. There you go what everyone else says when I use this example, that what you didn't say is how many employees work there, its growth trajectory, its competitors. And so it wasn't so much changing the data or how we program the data, but it was understanding the data. And what's crazy is that data exists on a lot of different sites. If you want to know the companies that recently were funded, look at Crunchbase or Privco or PitchBook. If you want to know great engineers, look at Stack Overflow and GitHub or Dribble for designers or Kaggle for data scientists. If you want to look for sales and finance people, you go on platforms like LinkedIn. There are millions of resumes sitting in resume databases that are publicly available. City and state registration boards. If you're in medical profession, all of that is in city and state registration boards. If you created a patent, look up Google Scholar. It's all there. And this information, which is fantastic. We've all put it out there saying, this is about me. But the challenge is what happens is we don't know what we're supposed to put. Are we supposed to put every kind of skill that we've ever had? So because people don't know that, big categories have a discrepancy in data. So women put 40% less skills on their resumes and profiles than men. Every technology in talent is using keywords. That means it's like Excel. You put in a word. If it's there, it tells you it is or not. If you put in a bunch of skills and let's say a female is equally qualified for the opportunity, but she didn't say every potential version of how you say B2B sales, like enterprise sales or business sales or corporate sales or all the other ways you could say that same skill, she's going to get overlooked. What Sensia understood was saying, how do we cluster all these skills together to build an understanding to say, all right, these are all connected to enterprise sales. Here's how connected they are by waiting. Here's the other skills they're connected to. So when an organization says, we really need AI and data science skills. We understand that's over 1,360 skills that are required to know and then contextualize 
on a person and then match that to the job titles they've had, the companies they've had. And what you're looking at is people the way that they deserve to be seen. Because I think every person would tell you they're all more than a keyword. I'm more than University of Virginia. I'm more than IPO. I'm more than an athlete. We have all these different factors about us that when you see how all those things connect and then you cross-reference that against hundreds of millions of people, you start to recognize patterns that keep showing up just like anything. That's how we identify that about consumers. But it's just never been done for talent. And what excites me is that the future of HR software is much fairer, much more efficient, and much more intelligent. Love that. Well, I know that Sancia is going through a fundraising round, its second fundraising round. So good luck to you. And I want to be Thank you. thoughtful of time because I want to ask my typical questions for the show. And so good luck to the fundraising side. But let's go to the typical questions I ask all my guests, starting with who or what inspires you? People inspire me. My team inspires me. Learning everything I don't know inspires me. I'm constantly inspired. If you can't tell, I get so excited about what I do. And that's because I learn more things every day about how it happens and what we're doing. And it just blows my mind that there are people that are as smart as my team out there making it happen. I have these crazy vision and they blow me away. Like I could close my eyes and tell you this is my dream. And that inspires me so much. I love that. I interviewed this one psychologist, Dr. Leah Lagos, and I loved her answer also in terms of the energy that people have in the search for constant learning. And she says that alone inspires me so greatly. So it sounds very similar. Do you have a mentor or role model that has helped you, whether in college or in the FBI or during this entrepreneur path? But do you have someone that really helped shape your mindset? So many. I don't have one. I've been blessed because I think that my life is just a byproduct of all the mentors that have touched it. And I would say that the big first mentors for me are my parents. My dad had this bigger than life personality. Like you can accomplish anything. Like I told him I was going to China. He's like, you go for it, kid. Like, I mean, and my mom did too. And I remember as a kid, my mom was an entrepreneur and I was four years old and my mom came down the stairs and I'm maybe four or five years old. And my mom came down the stairs and she had this Halloween costume. I was like this time of year. And there were a bunch of people around. And I mean, she just looked smoking. Like it was like a leather cat suit outfit. And she had two kids and everybody just stopped in the room. And it wasn't because she had the leather cat suit on. It was because she commanded this respect from people and was looked at so highly by others. So to this day, people tell me like, your mom changed our industry. And I remember being like, I one day... I want someone to feel the way about me that I feel about my mom. And she has been a massive inspiration. And she is, I mean, to this day, everything that she touches, I just, I'm blown away with her ability to have creativity at a time when I can't see anything, but their actual whatever's in front of me, or she pushes me harder and she challenges me more. She doesn't let me get caught in my way. And so those are things that are really important. As I built Sensia. I've had some amazing mentors. I will tell you my lead investor and our investor base is unbelievable. And every hardship happened to get that investor base and to get those people around us. Every advisor that we have is just, they challenge us and they are our champions and they fight for us. And it's really means something when all of a sudden that is a president of SAP or the CTO of IBM. And you're like, oh, wow, like that is how close it is. And it's really, that's what inspires me. But I would say that it's, it's always, I seek out mentors and I collect them. Again, it's part of lifelong learning, I guess. 
I love that. Well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and I'm sure that your kids will think the same about you if they don't already. What are you most proud of so far? I sound like a broken record. I'm most proud of my team. Fourth company rolls out. It's kind of like four kids. I'm sure people that have four kids, like the first kid, you're like growing tomatoes in your backyard. Even if you're in an apartment in San Francisco, you're growing them, blending them, making the baby food. The fourth child, you're like, hey, dude, you can figure it out. There's ramen somewhere in there. Just make it yourself. You're going to survive. The fourth time around, it's so different because I understand all those things I talked about, not delegating, not having great investors, not having the right team at the right stage. All those things became, while they were challenging to go through at the time, they became my greatest lessons and became the pieces that really now have made it so much easier. So I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the survival. I will tell you, there was a point there where I looked back at the last, the six months prior, and I go, every single thing that I wrote down that is the worst thing that could have ever happened, it happened. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm still here. Like I survived. The sun kept coming up. Like every day those things would happen. I mean, it was just... I think that a lot of us don't understand that when we go through trauma like that, it is post-traumatic stress and we have to build ourselves back up and we have to relearn confidence at its greatest. And so I have an organization I belong to called YPO, Young Presence Organization, that has been huge in my life. To have other CEOs that have been through hardships that are like mine or way worse and say that they've been through it and they've survived and share their experiences and allow me to pick out pieces that I can apply to my own is, is really great. But also to have them that I respect so much that you should do this again. I'm proud of that. I know it takes a village and I've heard of the amazing supportive network in YPO. So that's great that you have that. I used to ask people to share their most impactful failure or struggle. And I've changed it a little bit because ultimately from that, you have so much lessons learned and growth. So if you can share one of or your biggest growth moment. I used to seek appreciation and approval and love from others. And I went on this journey to understand and start to love and appreciate and respect myself. And that one thing has allowed me to not need that from others, but rather to believe that because we are our hardest critics. We are the ones who are sitting there telling us that horrible story. I have an incredible executive coach and she said to me, she goes, if you ever want to be depressed, think about the past. If you want to be anxious, think about the future. And if you just want to be doing nothing, think about both at the same time. Apply the things that happened to you in the past and think about them in the future. All you have is right now. It's right now. It's your moment to do it right now and not think about, okay, whatever happened then, all the hell that I've been through, that all of a sudden it's going to happen again. That instead, it's that, I understand myself and I love and I appreciate myself and what I've been through in the journey and the way that I've tackled it and the team that I have. I don't need others to tell me that. And so I'm still on that journey. But <laughs> I think that's the, the thing. That's the, the big lesson, funny enough. Oh, no, I think and that's is the, the ultimate lesson. No, I think that's the ultimate lesson of putting away the should computer, as my friend Holly Mandel says, of you shooting yourself. Like you should be doing this. You should be doing that. And people have these expectations that you want to perform to, but at the same time, those aren't what you want to do and those expectations you don't want to fulfill. So that's an amazing lesson learned. What's next for Joe Riley? I think what's next is Sensi is on this incredible growth right now and it's really doing it right and thinking about making sure that it's built to survive for a really long time, which is I think in the next stage of a, a startup being whatever a startup goes through, no matter how much hyper growth it goes through, if 
it's the CEO gets hit by a bus. The organization can't just diffuse. It has to, or any one person, there can't be a single point of failure. And I think that stage of moving from a single point of failure to really having a platform that changes the world with or without any of its people, that excites me so much because what we're doing, it, it is just, we owe this to people to do and it will change so many lives. That's what I get excited by. So I think I'm in this one for a while, but I'll probably also, as I mentioned, I've got some incredible genes. So passes on one way or another. I love that. Well, I am excited to hear more about Sensia. I mean, the ultimate mission to attract and recruit and also retain is like the trifecta in recruitment. So good luck. And I can't wait to hear more. But thank you so much for sharing your story and being on the show. Thank you. This is great. And thanks for hearing me.